The day has finally arrived. You've waited 20 years for this occasion. And almost in a daze you ask, is this real? You had first rehearsed your wedding at age six with Simeon, the boy next door. Since then, the exact details of how it would be have unfolded in your dreams one at a time. The dress, the feast, the decorations, the guests and invitations, what month of the year, the groom. Oh yes, the groom. Well, that detail could wait until later. There were more important things to think about than the groom. Besides, he would be chosen by your parents anyway. After your engagement, you had a one year to plan, the typical length of all Jewish engagements by Jewish law. Now, after all the planning and preparation, the wedding, the wedding. Your family had gone to great lengths and expense to decorate your home. The wedding ceremony and feast would be held in the spacious, lofty great room where you ate as a family. It was brilliantly lit with lamps and candlesticks. The guests were scattered around on low tables, couches with cushions or covered with tapestry. Some were seated in chairs. The bridal blessing has been spoken. The, the bridal cup emptied. Now it was time to party. The feast had begun. The bride looked around the room. The servants were moving in and out through the guests, serving food and drink. And she noticed Mary, her favorite aunt. She was so organized. She was glad Mary had volunteered to oversee the feast. Then there was Jesus and his friends and his brother James. She thought back a few years. Jesus had always been warm, funny, gentle, and congenial. But James, he'd been a brat. Oh well, I guess everybody grows up. How many of you remember your wedding day? Man, you better get it up there, okay, that's good. The wedding of a son or daughter or somebody special, okay, we all can go back and we can remember a wedding we've attended. Well today I want to take you to a wedding in first century Palestine in Cana of Galilee. I want to join them as we continue our series, Mission Impossible, God's Plan to Save the Planet. Let's turn to John. John, the second chapter, the Gospel of John, the second chapter, and we're going to read the first 11 verses of John 2. John 2, verses 1 through 11. It'll be on the PowerPoint. You can find it on your electronic device or whatever you want to find on your person. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, I'll fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This 
the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. A wedding, a celebration. In the scheme of history, a small wedding, a regular family in a small town. No big deal. Unless, of course, you're the bride and groom or the fathers and mothers or the family. The guests included Mary, Jesus' mother, Jesus and his disciples, and probably relatives and close friends of the wedding party. Verse two says, Jesus and his disciples had been invited. Jesus was there, not because he was a celebrity or famous figure. No one knew he was God yet. Jesus was invited because the bride and groom liked him. They liked him. People in the town enjoyed being with Jesus. Max Ducato writes this, I think it is significant that common folk in a little town enjoyed being with Jesus. I think it is noteworthy that the Almighty didn't act high and mighty. The Holy One wasn't holier than thou. The one who knew it all wasn't a know-it-all. The one who made the stars didn't keep his head in them. The one who owns all the stuff of earth never strutted it. This is the human side of Jesus. He was flesh and blood, had family, friends. He loved being at celebrations, and people loved having him there. He had fun. We're going to look at five truths. There are a lot more truths than five, but we're going to look at five truths I hope we can grab from this passage today and apply them to our lives as we move on in our series today. Five truths we can learn about Jesus. Number one, Jesus loved people and had fun. Jesus loved people and had fun. Now, we all know Jesus loved people, but had fun? Why is that important? Because we are all too serious. We're too serious. Why would anyone be attracted to Jesus if he was just serious all the time? You don't think he told Norwegian jokes? You don't think God has a sense of humor? Look at the people around you. Look in the mirror, okay? He made all of us, okay? God has a sense of humor. He does. The most natural of all expressions is the smile. The most spontaneous of all actions is laughter. And I'm not talking about the proper, trite, little tee-hee courtesy laugh. It's a long, boisterous, loud belly laugh. I mean, we're talking real laughter, okay? God made laughter. He made us to laugh. Reader's Digest has a column entitled, Laughter, Best Medicine. Studies have demonstrated the physical benefits, even healing qualities, of laughter. People pay big bucks to go to a comedy. Why? Just to laugh. Just to laugh. Come on, lighten up, okay? We're supposed to smile, we're supposed to have fun. We're actually supposed to have fun in church too, that's okay, this is good. He made us to have fun and laugh. No one is going to want to follow Jesus if we are too serious. So let's start there. Jesus loved people and he had fun. Truth number two is Jesus knows and cares about our circumstances. Jesus knows and cares about our circumstances. In the middle of the celebration, they've got a problem. They ran out of wine. We say, so what? What's the big deal? We run out of the drink at the, uh, at the wedding reception. You just run to the closest mega foods or quick trip, right? That's what we do. Well, it was a little more serious than that. There are culture differences between what happened then and what happened today. 
The bride and groom in this day evidently were responsible for the supply of wine. And in the ancient Near East, there was a strong element of reciprocity about weddings. It was possible to take legal action in certain circumstances against a man who failed to provide an appropriate wedding gift. It'd be like the Eau Claire police showing up at a reception here and saying to the groom, you have to miss your honeymoon, you should have known better than to buy her a vacuum cleaner for a wedding gift, okay? They would have been, take them away in cuffs. Am I exaggerating? Perhaps. But there was a sense of legal obligation here. When the supply of wine failed, it was more than social embarrassment. There was perhaps some liability involved. And say, great, now we have to buy wine insurance. If the wine gave out before the end of the feast, something la- sometimes lasting a week, it was a slur on the hosts for not discharging the duties of hospitality. Now obviously it's less severe today. If you go to a wedding reception, they run out of food and, and, and drink and cake and stuff like that. It's an embarrassment. It's a big embarrassment, but it's a, it's a bad deal. Regardless, here in this story, we got a problem. We got a problem. And Jesus could have said, oh well, Poor planning, it's too bad they messed up. I guess they just have to pay the consequences. Do you ever view Jesus that way? He's the judge. I broke the law, he's gonna hand down the sentence, and I made a mistake, I planned poorly, I sinned, and I guess God is just gonna get me for this. I've gotta pay the consequences of my actions. I've made poor choices. That's not how Jesus responds. He knows and he cares about our circumstances no matter who is at fault. In the historical scheme of things, this wedding would make no long-term difference. An unimportant wedding, a small town, insignificant couple, just a wedding. Why would Jesus even care? Have you ever felt that way? I'm really not that important. Why would God take time to bother with me and my problem? Well, Jesus knows, and he cares about your circumstances. Truth number three. Number three, Jesus is willing to intervene and get involved to help us. He's willing to intervene and get involved to help us. Mary, Jesus' mother, for whatever reason, feels some kind of responsibility for the situation and actually gets involved. And she tells Jesus They have no more wine. Now it's possible that she expected Jesus to do something miraculous. I mean, obviously Mary knew about Jesus' miraculous conception. She knows by her song that's recorded in Luke chapter two that she knows that Jesus is the Messiah. How would you like to be Messiah's mom? She knew he was gonna be the Messiah. She, She didn't know what it entailed. Yeah, go clean your room. Finish your vegetables. You only get dessert till you, yeah, whatever. Okay, you can imagine. We learned last week that the hometown he lived in, or a couple weeks ago, that the hometown he lived in was, they thought he was an ordinary person because he probably hadn't done any signs or wonders yet. What the Messiah was going to do, no one really understood. But instead of expecting the miraculous, Mary may have just expected the ordinary, just the ordinary. Mary had grown to have confidence in Jesus. He was mature, resourceful, lived at home for 30 years. And of course, all good sons obey their mothers, right? First Lady Laura Bush, 
recalls one overnight visit with her husband in the home of his parents, the former president and Barbara Bush. She said, George woke up at 6 a.m. as usual and went downstairs to get a cup of coffee. He sat down on the sofa with his parents and put his feet up on the coffee table. Barbara Bush, his mother, yelled, put your feet down. George's dad replied, for goodness sake, Barbara, he's the president of the United States. Barbara said, I don't care. I don't want his feet on my table. And the president promptly did what he was told. As Laura Bush observed, even presidents have to listen to their mothers. Okay. Well, Mary said to Jesus, Jesus, we've got a problem. What do we do? Jesus has a response that seems totally out of character for him. This is, and, and we don't understand the culture, but I hope we can kind of paint the picture here. We've got a problem. In verse four, he calls her woman. Calls her woman. Now, good Jewish sons usually address their mothers with the word mater, meaning mother. It's a very respectful word, mater, mother. Here, Jesus addresses her with the word gunai, meaning woman. Woman. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? I believe Jesus was establishing a new relationship with his mother because he was getting ready to begin his public ministry. Why did John include this story? Because it had a nice miracle in it? No, this is a change point. This change is actually an exciting high point in history. Jesus was going to begin his mission impossible, the start of God's plan to save the planet. This is the threshold on which we pass from the old to the new. Mary has been Jesus' mother in maternal authority. Here in one statement, Jesus establishes an entirely new order. He's about to exercise his authority as Messiah, the King, the Son of God. So he says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. This is not disrespectful, but means your concern and mine are not the same. He's basically changing the nature of the relationship between he and his mother in one sentence. I don't know if you've seen throughout the years change of the nature of relationships. Subtle shifts that occur, particularly in, in a role with parents with children. When, when our kids were young, we put them to bed early so we could have dessert or we could watch TV or something. You know, we'd want to read in silence. We'd put the kids to bed early. They got into junior high, and pretty soon they're getting to bed about the same time. By the time we're in high school, we're worn out, and so we're in bed, and they're up studying or doing whatever, okay? There's a change in, in our relationship, a subtle shift in our nature. And the parents begin by caring for their children. Eventually and gradually over time, children begin to look out for their parents. And at the end of life, most parents are depending on their children. There's a change, a transition in relationship. And that's a very basic illustration of the nature of change in relationship. When Jesus calls his mother woman and says, my time has not yet come, he's establishing a radical change of relationship and asserting his authority over the timing of his life. He says, his timing or my time or hour has not come. But this is the time of life that Jesus is getting ready to reveal his true identity and make public by his actions that he is Messiah. He is initiating his Mission Impossible role to begin saving planet Earth, the inauguration of his public ministry. This was to be the first intervention to help, beginning 
And Mary says, do whatever he tells you. At this time in history, Jesus begins his miraculous interventions at a small town wedding. Amazing. Jesus intervenes and reveals who he is. Well, no matter what your challenge is today, many of us feel they, they're trite or unimportant. You may ask, in light of the current world events, why would God care about my little life or my insignificant need? Well, Jesus knows. Jesus cares. Jesus is willing to intervene and get involved to help you. He doesn't just help nations and cities and important people. He hears all of our prayers and pleas for help. Now Jesus, being all-knowing, knew they did run out of wine, but he got involved when he was informed and it was requested that he get involved. Sometimes God's aware of our needs. He's waiting for us to ask and request help. What are you facing today? Bankruptcy? Bills you can't pay, maybe it's an unwanted divorce in your family, emotional stress from abuse, maybe it's depression, loneliness. Maybe you're tired, no energy or no strength left. The job pressures come, the time pressures are there. There's just one more school function, another soccer practice, another doctor's appointment. Maybe you've run out of wine today. Jesus cares. Ask. Pray. Jesus wants to intervene and get involved to help you. So Jesus loves people and has fun. Jesus knows and cares about our circumstances. Jesus is willing to intervene and get involved to help us. And fourth, Jesus has the power and will use it to help us. He has the power. How do I know that? Faith. Faith. How do I know this story is true? Faith. How do we know Jesus even existed? Faith. You may be here this morning and doubt all these things, and that's okay. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have doubts. If everybody had all the answers, we would be superhuman. We all have doubts. We all wrestle with the reality of spiritual things and the nature of Christianity. It's okay. Ask questions. Search. We have great historical documentation, even from a non-biblical and extra-biblical sources, proof that a very unusual man named Jesus lived in first century Palestine, gained a following, reportedly did miraculous deeds, was murdered by the Romans, and his followers believed and claimed he rose from the dead. How can we believe all that stuff? Faith. Let's talk about faith for a minute. How many of you... How many of you use the internet? Good. Probably 100%. And those of you who don't think you do, you probably do anyway. Okay, internet. 20 years ago, if you would have told me I could type a message on a typewriter keyboard, point a clicker called a mouse, and an icon labeled send on a television screen called a monitor, and the message I typed would travel wirelessly through cyberspace, which hadn't been called that yet, to thousands of recipients all over the world simultaneously, I would have said you're crazy. Okay, how many of you know that? Yeah. Crazy. And now you can speak the same message and send text or voice the same way to thousands of people simultaneously. Now, how do we know, how do you know, that that email message is going to get where you're sending it? Faith, faith, yeah. I, I mean, when I first started emailing, it was back in 1995, 
my first email was sent to overseas to my brother in Taiwan. Uh, but I used to email, and then I'd pick up the phone and call and say, did you get my email? <laughs> if, you're, if you're under 40, you probably don't understand that because it was, it's always been fine. But it's like we got to make sure this thing actually works. How do we know the email is getting to where we're sending it? It's, it's faith. Our vocabulary has changed. A virus is what our computer catches. Spam is something we can't eat. We have Twitter and Tweet and Facebook. We like and friend. We have Instagram. I post on Twitter. It posts on Facebook and gets liked or not. Now, those of you who are techies, and I, I appreciate very much Damien's gifts, those of you who are techies understand and can explain how all this actually works. The rest of us just have faith because we don't understand. Okay? But just because we don't understand how something works does not mean it doesn't work. How did Jesus turn the water into wine? I don't know. I don't understand how it's possible any more than sending an email. Was there alcohol in the wine? Some of us have been more concerned about that than why Jesus intervened to help, but that's another time. That'll be something else. (laughs) Jesus knew it worked. Some think that if we understand it, it's a normal occurrence. If we don't understand it, it's a miracle. Really, and get this down, I'm going to repeat this a couple times. A miracle is an intervention by God in the normal course of events to cause something out of the ordinary to happen. Let me repeat that. A miracle is an intervention by God in the normal course of events to cause something out of the ordinary to happen. My understanding or lack of it is not what makes a miracle. It's about God's intervention. I mean, really, God just decided to speak and the entire universe came into existence in less than an instant. I mean, it's amazing. He created everything in the universe. To God, these are everyday occurrences. To us, us, they're all miracles because we don't understand it. How does God use his power? How does he use it to help us? We pray, we ask, and he acts. It works. How do we know? Faith. Jesus has the power and will use it to help us. And did you know that he always does things right? Verse 10 says he made the best wine. Does everything good. Fifth truth about Jesus. Jesus' miracles are signs to show us who he is so we can put our faith in him. They're signs to show us who he is so we can put our faith in him. Verse 11 says, this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This was his first miraculous sign. What does a sign do? Points in a direction. Points the way. This sign that was done points to Jesus. It revealed his glory. It revealed who Jesus was. And the disciples responded by putting their faith in him. Put your faith Note the response of the disciples. Put their faith. When we see God at work, there is always a response required. When you see God do something, there's always a response that's that's asked for. We can choose to believe. We can choose not to believe. We can choose to trust or not to trust. We can place our faith in and we can choose not to put our faith in. 
There's no such thing as a no decision. A no decision is rejection. These disciples took action. They believed. They trusted. They put their faith in Jesus. Where are you today? Do you believe all this stuff? Will you put your faith in Jesus? Do you need a miracle today? You may be here today and never have put your faith in Jesus or maybe decided to run your own life and put your faith in someone else or something else. I believe that Jesus is speaking to all of us today and extending a call, challenging us to put our faith in Jesus. If you've already put your faith in Jesus, Jesus' mission is now your mission. Mission impossible. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that cares about every detail of our lives. Thank you that Jesus was the representative of God, was God. He came to demonstrate who you are. And I pray as we continue to go through this series of Mission Impossible and your plan to save the planet begins to unfold to us through Jesus, that you would give us a new understanding of who you are and what you came to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next Sunday, we're going to expand our understanding of what it means to put our faith in Jesus as we look at the journey of one man, as we continue our series, Mission Impossible, God's Plan to Save the Planet. God bless you. Go, let's see, I think it's go Hawkers or go um, Packhawks, whatever, something like that. Anyway, both of them. They're not playing this week. Anyway, God bless you. Have a great week.